I'm going to ask you a question, and, and there is a risk with this question because it may come back and bite me. Um, let me. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard a sermon where at the end of it you ask, what's it got to do with me? Some of you, I hear that laughter, that nervous laughter, and you're thinking about sermons that have been preached from this, this pulpit before, and you walked away going, that's got nothing to do with me. I remember growing up as a, as a kid in a Christian home, our lives were filled with church. And when I say filled with church, let me, let me lay out a week, a typical week for you in the Thomas household. We went to church on Monday. We went to church on Wednesday. went to church on Thursday. We went to church on Friday. And if that wasn't enough, in those off days, we were hosting events at our house, at our apartment back in the Middle East. And so church was a big part of who we were, a big part of our life, big part of our family. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time with each other, with our community as, as Christians. But we also spent, our families were structured around the fact that we were Christ followers. So we'd spend a lot of time praying with each other and singing songs and, and becoming. That's how I grew up. But I can tell you, um, so back in the Middle East where we grew up, the, the weekends are Thursdays and Fridays. So Friday mornings, we go to church. And so Friday mornings, I can tell you how many Friday mornings I'd get to church and we'd sing the songs and I'm all excited. We pray and all of that was great and wonderful. And we get to the sermon and I'm out. I'm checked out. I mean, I'm sure there are kids in this church or teenagers or, or, or a few of you who get to the sermon and you are done. The exciting part of church is over, right? And you're mentally checked out. Because for me, what happens was when I got to that sermon, it, was, it, it kind of got boring. And as a child, there was a lot that was said in sermons that I just could not relate to. I just, hey, I'm in school. I'm a fifth grader. None of this applies to me, right? And so I can remember times where I just completely check out. But the moments I, would, I was zoned in, I was captured, was when someone said a story. When someone shared a story about their personal lives, I, I was intrigued. I loved that moment, especially when missionaries or pastors who were visiting would come and they would share stories about what was happening around the world and happening through their ministries. It was laser focus. And the weirder the story, the more you had my attention. But I always had this one nagging question at the end of the sermon or at the end of the service, and, and I'm going home and going, how does that relate to me again? Now, and here's why I'm saying this, because we're going to go into a story today. I love stories. But the danger with this story is we can read through it so quickly and get to it saying, that has nothing to do with me. Let's move on. Let's move on to next week. Let's, let's consider something else. And I hope, my prayer is that, I hope you don't feel that way, that instead of just fast-forwarding through the story, that there are points of connection for us. It's a story that gets weird. It's a story that, that turns, and people often stay and ask questions of, wait, why would he do that? Why would he say that? Why would, why would, why would? And my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that, hey... You stick with me, and we'll, we'll get through it. It's, uh, it's a fascinating story. So we've been in our series called Good Dirt, and in Good Dirt, we've been talking about the, the parable that Jesus mentions of the sower. 
The sower casts out seed, and he, he, um, the sower that's God himself casting out the gospel, casting out the new life that is found through Jesus. And some people, they encounter this, and they receive it. But somehow the cares of the world just were too much. Choke it out. Some people receive it, and they never did the hard work of removing the things that would choke out this, the seed. Choked out. Some people, as soon as it fell on them, they rejected it completely. That's the, the path, people. They heard it, nope, not, not for me. This is not what I want. And then you have the people, the good dirt people. The good dirt people receive it. They let it grow. They let it transform their lives. And they become productive members in the kingdom of God. And so we've been asking this question, how do you and I... How do we become those good dirt people? How can we be sure that our hearts are ready for the gospel? How can we be sure that when the gospel does enter us and when Jesus is asking something of us that we respond as the good dirt people would do? So here we are in the story. So Jesus, this last week, James did an incredible job of describing where Jesus was. Jesus and his disciples, they're crossing the lake last week. And so they're crossing the lake. They're, they get into the storm. And for seasoned sailors that the disciples were, that was a storm that was a big one where they basically got to the end of the rope, and in desperation, they cried out, we're going to drown. This is it. This is the end of the, sto uh, the story here. And you hear how Jesus rises to the occasion almost, and he calms the winds. He calms the waves. And for the first time, the disciples look at this man and look at Jesus and go, wait, who is this man that he has absolute control over the wind and the waves? They had experienced Jesus' power unlike they had ever before. And so now the story continues in Luke chapter 8, and we get to the, I'll put a little bit of the context, and then we'll read the scripture together. They get to this place called the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes is a city, a part of the Decapolis, or the 10 cities that, were, that had a heavy Greek influence. It was built in, during the time of Alexander, and so it's in Palestine, but it is part of the Greek empire. And there's that influence. The people who were there were wealthy, they were educated, they were people of means, they had large livestock, they had large sources of income. Those are the neighborhoods you tried to get into, right? Jesus arrives on the, sh on the shore there. But it's interesting because Luke does a specific job of saying, hey, he arrived at the garrisons. And the reason he mentions that is because this is the first time Jesus is actually leaving the confines of the Jewish areas. Jesus is leaving the confines of Israel, and he's going out into the Gentiles. And for a Jewish person, this was an unclean place to be. This was the wrong place to be. As a matter of fact, we'll see how Jesus ends up in the tombs there. He ends up interacting with people that were unclean. He ends up talking and dealing with people, and it is the wrong place for Jesus to be. All right, so let's, let's read. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. 
And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he, Jesus, gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country, and then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen him told him how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man whom the demons had gone, had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and your grace that is exhibited through your, through your scripture this morning. And Lord, I pray that even as we deal with the story of this man who was possessed, I pray that we would see our own sinfulness and we would see our own condition apart from you. And Lord, that we may be aware of your work, that we may be aware of your power. Speak into our lives, transform us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So interesting story. A man possessed by demons. There are a couple of things that I want us to look at. Because when we talk about being good dirt people, you'll see a theme run through the story of how certain people respond to Jesus and certain people reject him. Certain people accept the work that he, is, he's, he has for them and others send him away. Definitely the good dirt and the path people. But there are two things here that I want to I talk about and two things that conspire against us. There, one is external to us and one is internal to us. And those two things conspire to keep us in conflict with what Jesus has to say to us. Keep us from receiving what Jesus has to say to us. And the first is this. There are evil spiritual forces working to harden our heart to Jesus. That's it. There are evil forces around us that work, that conspire that do evil, that inhabit sometimes, that bring, that work against people responding to who Jesus is. You see, when Jesus and his disciples, they get to the shore, they're immediately confronted by this man who had a few demons. And by a few, I mean a legion. A legion in that time was a term for a military unit. 
a military unit of a thousand soldiers or a thousand troops. And so when Jesus asks, hey, who are you? What's your name? He says, I am legion, referring to the fact that there were a thousand demons. And they, the story says, the, the, the scripture says that they inhabited this man. The man was homeless. He dwelt among the tombs. This is a person people avoided at all costs. There are times when you're walking through the city in, in Boston and, uh, and you get to certain places and you see people on the streets and, and you know, hey, if I cross that person, things are not going to go well. And you usually cross the street and make your way around. That's how people dealt with him. People avoided him at all costs. He was uncontrollable. As a matter of fact, Matthew, writing about this story, would talk about how he would seize people. He was dangerous to himself and to the others around him, to his community. And so, so this was a dangerous man. He crossed the bounds of human decency. He, he lived naked. He was bound. He was tied up with chains, and his, the demons inside him, of him had made him so strong that he would just break the chains apart. A man who was essentially reduced to the status of a wild animal. He was demonized, marginalized, ostracized, and he was hopeless. See, apart from Christ, this is the end of a life of sin unchecked. Now, that's a bold statement to make because... Here's what I'm trying to say. What I'm not saying is that everyone is demon-possessed. But what I am saying is that we have a bent towards sin. That we have a proclivity towards sin. That if left unchecked, sin destroys and kills. Sin in our hearts, in the hearts of humanity, sin came into this world through disobedience of two people. Adam and Eve, and ever since then, sin and every, all the evil behind it has one objective, to kill and to destroy. And we were all a part of that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, this is what Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, he's referring to the devil himself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and by, were, were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Apart from Christ, this is who we are. So when you look around the world and you see the evil that is happening, and you see the brokenness and the, and the pain that is happening, this is how Paul describes it. This is what is happening. This is who we are. We are all born with a bent towards sin. No one has to teach us how to rebel. I have a little two-year-old toddler running around at home. And no one, and we've spent a lot of time, we've spent the last almost 20 months teaching him how to address life and how to, he, we've been helping him learn and helping him ad adjust to his life around him. But one thing that we haven't taught and we don't have to teach and he just knows for some reason 
is to say no. It's to do the exact opposite of what we're asking him. As a matter of fact, just this morning, I'm getting ready for church, and I see him running into the room, grabbing everything, and I say, Judah, stop it. He looks at me, looks back at the stuff that he's grabbing, looks at me, grabs it, and runs off. Now, there is no course that we, he took to figure out how to rebel, or there's nothing that he needed to learn. It's a part of who we are. We're born that way. Colossians, Paul is describing, he's saying, we were alienated and hostile in minds. We were doing evil deeds. Even if you don't describe yourself as an evil person, even if you don't describe yourself as, hey, I'm a, I'm a murderer or I'm a thief or I'm a, I'm a cheat, I, even if you don't check off any of those boxes, Paul's saying, by the very fact that we were, we were outside of Christ, we're outside of his grace, this is who you are. Paul describes us as saying, we were, even when he died for us, even at that point, we were enemies towards him. In our, in our Western culture, we often don't encounter demon possessions, and we don't encounter people who, who are filled with, with, the, with the things that we see in Scripture. And unfortunately, our picture of demon possession is often shaped by the movies we watch or the media that we consume. We see movies and it tells us of people foaming at the mouth and levitating and doing all those things. And unfortunately, that's not the reality. I'm not always often looking for a devil with red horns and a pitchfork unless at Halloween. Right? That's not the reality that, we're, that we live with. But... Here's the reality. The Bible spends a lot of time speaking about the devil and the evil that he comes with. It's not superstition. It's not ignorance. It's not kidding. The reality is alongside all the good that God has created, all that is beautiful and marvelous and rational about this world, there is also at work a great legion of very powerful influences whose active aim or passive effect is dangerous and evil. Left unchecked, left unexamined, or unprepared for, these forces, their goal is one thing, to kill and destroy. That's the forces that we deal with. Paul reminds us that our, flesh, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the air. You see, so often when we are in conflict with each other, when we're in conflict with each other in the world, Jesus, Paul is saying, you're not in conflict with that person, but instead you're in conflict with the power behind that person. Left unchecked, they destroy the sanity of people. They destroy families and individuals and communities. See, this is what evil does. This is what the evil spirits of the world do. They dehumanize people. They drive wedges between them, fill them with rage, cause them to abuse and harm themselves and others. They only want to destroy and cause chaos. But as much as that's the case, when we see someone like that or when we see an effect like that, we're almost immediately alerted. But I would argue that 
the way the devil works now is not so much in that level, but instead it's subtle. It's hidden, it's quiet. It's conversations that we have that drive wedges between us. It's when, when we're called to be united, we're often divided. It's the enemy dealing, bringing doubt and, and uh, anger and anxiety against each other. And when we're always often fighting each other, that's when the devil wins. Slowly driving wedges between us, stirring us to anger, stirring our lust, stirring our appetites until we can't take it anymore. You see, that's not who God created us to be. He did not create us to be slaves, chained up, stripped off our, his glory and our humanity. You see, if you look at sin and you consider that we too were alienated, we too were, were against God, we too were doing the same things as man did, then we can suddenly realize, hey, this man is just as enslaved as we are, or we are just as enslaved as he is, maybe to a further extent. Maybe his enslavement was more visible, was more tangible, was more, was more destructive in his life. But if we really look at our own lives before Christ, apart from Christ, we can look at some of the influences that were in our lives that would have led to the same place. I've had numerous conversations with people in this church who, would have, who have said, hey, I was addicted and I was headed towards an overdose. I was angry, and I was headed towards abuse. I was this, I was that. And there are people in this church who were exactly in prison and enslaved. Yes, not all of us have that same story, but if we are truly honest with ourselves, we are enslaved apart from Christ. Maybe it's in our own pride. Maybe it's in our own way of doing things. Maybe it's in our own way of approaching God, we're enslaved. And then we continue in the story, Jesus comes and when, Jesus, when he sees Jesus, this man falls at his feet and says with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me, for he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. See, when this battalion of demons in, in this man comes running at Jesus, they recognize something that even his disciples a few verses ago did not. Because a few verses ago, when they're in the middle of the storm, and when Jesus stands up and calms it, they ask this question, who is this man? Who is this man? But the demons in this person, in this man, as soon as they see Jesus, they cry out, what have you to do with us? Who? Son of the Most High God. They look at Jesus and they know immediately who this is. Scripture talks about even, this, even the, the demons knowing who Jesus is and fearing. See, knowing is not enough. Faith is what the Christians claim. Because even the devil knows Jesus, even the devil knows God. That's what scripture says. They cry out to him and they beg him, saying, Jesus, don't send us away. Don't send us into the abyss. And here's, here's what that means. It's 
real quick lesson in the arc of Scripture. Scripture reminds us that the end of days is coming, that when all of this is ended, there is a time where there will be a judgment. And in that judgment, God himself, as the ultimate judge, is going to cast these demons into the abyss. He's going to cast them into a forever prison. He's going to cast them into a forever punishment. And these demons, they know that this is coming. And the fact that Jesus is standing in front of them, the ultimate judge is standing in front of them, their fear is that they were going to be sent there immediately. And they're crying out, Jesus, please don't send us there. And instead, we'll see what happens there. But before we move on, and this is something that I've, I've found myself doing so often, is when I read this story, I want to know what comes next. I want to know, hey, what do the demons do? What happens next? And in my wanting to do that, I often fast forward too quickly from the point of the story. You see, there's, the point of the story is not the man that who was, who was demon-possessed. It's incredible. There's, I mean, it's not something that you see every day, a thousand demons and a man. That's, that's unreal. That's not the point of the story. And what comes after, that's not the point of the story either. But it's in one quick statement that Luke makes. And the statement is this. Jesus cast out the demons. Jesus says, get out of him. Think about that for a second. What is Jesus doing? In that moment where Jesus says, get out of him, Jesus is changing the destiny of this man. Jesus is changing the very definition, the very way he was described. His name is never uh, described in the scripture. He's often referred to as the demoniac, a person in whom the demons resided. But what Jesus is doing, he's saying, you were called this before, but now I'm changing it. In one statement, come out of him, he changes this man's future. You see, we all have this moment where we come face to face with the creator, where we come face to face with Jesus. And we often refer to that moment, we often refer to that moment where we first started following Jesus, where we first encountered his scripture and we responded and said, Jesus, will you be my Lord? We often refer to that as the born again experience. We refer to that the moment we started following Jesus. And this moment for this man is where his destiny changes. But even bigger than that, you see, what Jesus is doing is fulfilling what he was here to do. Luke chapter eight, 4, verses 18 and 19, this is what Jesus' mission was. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is why Jesus was here. Jesus had come to this earth, left his glory above, left all of it above, and came as God incarnate to this earth for one purpose and one purpose alone, to set the captives free. So you and I sitting here today, when we talk about us being enslaved, when we talk about, uh, talk about us being captured, and we're talking about us being prisoners to sin, that ended the moment Jesus proclaimed, 
leave them. For us, it ended. We were set free. He proclaims liberty. He proclaims freedom. He proclaims you are now free and walk in it. So you and I sitting here, the fact that we're worshiping the Lord, the fact that we're reading his scripture, the fact that we're in community with each other, the thing that binds us all together is the liberty in which we, liberty in which we live. The liberty that is found in only one person, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Let's not fast forward into past this moment. Jesus had come for one reason that the captive and the enslaved would forever be free. Can you think back to the moment where you encountered this Jesus? Can you think back to the moment where he set you free? How has your life changed from then to now? What does that transformation look like? Because we'll talk about this man's transformation because when the people of the town come and they hear about what Jesus had done and they hear about all this wonderful story, they come and see a man fully clothed in his right mind, having a conversation, something he had not done for years and years. What does transformation look like in your life? What has Jesus done since you met him? What has Jesus done? What has Jesus transformed? And there's a reason why I'm asking. We'll get to that in a moment. But here's what happens. The story gets even better. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons, they begged him to let them enter these. So Jesus gives them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Now the animal lovers in, in us were saying, hold on. What just happened? Did Jesus really commit thousands of pigs to their death? See, this is usually in Bible studies in moments where we're talking about this scripture, we often get stuck at this point, or we often get stuck at questions about the demoniac, and we get stuck at this point, and we want to know, wait, why does it work this way, and what, what was Jesus thinking? See, the bigger truth when we ask these questions we often miss out on is this. Jesus delivers the man. And in that moment, Jesus had made a value judgment about the soul of the man and the herd of pigs. He determined that the soul of the man was worth much more than the value of the pigs. His deliverance from his current state of oppression and the value of his humanity and his dignity was worth more than the herd of pigs. Not to say that the herd of pigs didn't have value because it had tangible value, especially to the people who owned them. It had value. It destroyed their economy when, when these many pigs suddenly, uh, other, other gospel writers say there were about 2,000 pigs. When 2,000 pigs suddenly disappear, it hurts. It has an impact. There are families who are reliant on this, on this trade. There are families who are dependent on this. But Jesus, in this moment, he's saying, the value of your soul is worth every, much more than everything else. 
He will give up everything so that you and I could be rescued. He will give up his own life. When you look at the broader picture, Jesus looks at the value of your soul and compares it to his own death. And he says, I would rather go for your soul. I will gladly give up of my own. And that is the gospel. The gospel is this, that he loved us so much that he was willing, God was willing to send his only son to die on the cross. A value judgment being made between your soul and his son's life. And he's looking at it and he's saying, I will gladly pay the price. There's story after story of Jesus saying that the, the shepherd who will put everything aside and search for that one lost sheep. Or the woman who will, who will dust up her entire house because of that one lost coin. Or the lost son who was there, the father will search and search until his son comes back. Talking about you and I. Talking about our souls. Talking about the fact that we were lost. We were alienated. We were cast out into the darkness. We were enslaved. And Jesus giving up all of it so that you and I could come into his kingdom. Imagine yourself as a, as a journalist in that moment. What would your headline say? Jesus kills pigs. Jesus tanks the economy. Demon-possessed pigs. My favorite, devil tam. <laughs> How do the townspeople see it? Here's what it says. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen him told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with fear. See, Jesus made this long, treacherous journey across the Sea of Galilee. And I would argue for this one man. He faced the storms, the disciples faced the storms, and they faced the challenges all so that this man would be delivered. This man who would be the last person anyone thought about. Who would be the last person to receive a Christmas card. Who would be the last person... Jesus knew he had to be delivered. Jesus makes his way to the other side for him. But you see, Jesus sees the value in his soul, but the townspeople, they did not. As a matter of fact, what they, their response to him, their response to a man in their own eyes, they can see, hey, he is sitting there in his right mind. He is sitting there clothed. He is sitting there having a normal conversation. And yet... They asked Jesus to leave. Why? And here's it. Fear chokes off our ability sometimes to receive new life from Jesus. They were seized with great fear. Fear plays a big part in our lives. So often it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of loss. It's fear of change. And you see, here's the thing. When Jesus comes into the equation, when you and I encounter Jesus, 
all those things come. Change happens. Transformation happens. The unknown, we live in the unknown. We live in uncharted territory. We live with loss on our minds. Maybe, maybe they were afraid that, hey, Jesus is going to keep doing this and he's going to destroy our way of life. He's going to destroy our economy. The families were upset that they had, he had destroyed their pigs. Whatever their fears were, this was the first time they had seen someone with an incredible transformation. What else can Jesus do? Scripture says they were just fearful. So they drove Jesus away in their fear, not realizing that he was the antidote to their fear. You see, sometimes we're so afraid of what Jesus will do, what Jesus will ask of us, what Jesus will cause us to do and cause us to transform into, that we're willing to reject him. And we know people like that in our own families, in our own communities. We know people who, given the gospel, they're willing to walk away. Fear controls our human behavior. In a positive sense, it heightens our senses and awareness. But in a negative sense, it keeps us from really living life the way we want to or the way we're supposed to. If you research into fear, you'll realize that it has a lot to do with the way we approach our careers, the way we approach our relationships, the way we approach our life, the way we do everything. There is fear that often has a big part to say. Even in our role as Christ followers, fear often takes, gets the best of us sometimes. You see, our fear is a fear of loss. Our fear of loss is a strong force and a strong motivator sometimes. But that's because we often don't consider the paradox of Scripture. And the paradox of Scripture is this. In Luke chapter 9, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it, will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits himself. That's the paradox of scripture. Don't be afraid to lose what you have. Don't be afraid to lose what's in you. Don't be afraid to lose it. Because by losing it, you're gaining the kingdom of God. One of my favorite stories is the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary in the 50s, and he gave his life for the sake of a people tribe or a tribe in, in, in Ecuador. He and a few other missionaries flew this little plane that you see into the area, into the place, into Ecuador, and they were met with anger, and they were met with arrows, and they were met with cannibals who shot their plane down, and they died never having actually said the words, Jesus loves you. And later in his, in his journal, he'll, you'll read these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. His wife, just recently, Elizabeth, passed away here in Peabody. And she often talks about how even though he went, he lost his life the tribe would come to Jesus. That, his, that Elizabeth and her team would go back 
to the Horani tribe. And they would go back with the gospel knowing very well that the same people who killed her husband would kill her too. And yet she considered, my loss is his gain. And so they went back, and the entire tribe, the entire community comes to Jesus. See, Jim lost his life at the age of 28. Obedience to Jesus will may cost us everything. And there's a lot of fear about that. But its reward is priceless. It's beyond worldly value. You see, fear keeps us from really experiencing. The fear of change keeps us from embracing the transformation that Jesus brings. For these people, it was fear that kept them and fear that caused them to reject Jesus completely. See, what, what they were truly saying is this. They had, they had been comfortable enough with the fact that the man was demon-possessed. And they were comfortable enough saying, hey, let's leave him in the tombs. He'll, he'll be there. We'll stay out of his way. But the moment it affected their pockets and the moment that his deliverance, this man's deliverance, affected the way of life they were accustomed to, their response was rejection. See, when Jesus appears on the scene, there is an impact to the way you live. There is an impact to your pocket. There is an impact to your career. There is an impact to the, your dreams and aspirations. And he's asking, Will you be fearful of that? See, one of the funny things about this story is we come to a close, and I'm going to invite the worship team back up. One of the funny things about this story is that when the demons ask Jesus, saying, hey, don't send us into, into the abyss, send us into the pigs, he says, yes, go. And later when the, the townspeople, they come in and they say, Jesus, get out of here. He says, yes, sure, I'll leave. But there's one person that he says no to, and that is to the man. Because the man responds like this. He asks him, Jesus, can I come with you? Jesus, this is not home for me. I want to get out of here. I will gladly follow you wherever you go. And instead, this is what Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see, good dirt people grow where they're planted. Good dirt people grow where they're planted. See, the, the words return to your home must have made the man's heart sink. Because you see, for him, home so far is a place of rejection. Home for him is a place of painful memories. Home for him is where people know who he was before he encountered Christ. Home for him was painful. Home for him was hurtful. Home for him was a place of dark memories. And Jesus tells him, go back home. See, for some of us, this, uh, earlier in this sermon, I asked you, do you remember the place you were before you met Christ? Do you remember those places where you came out of? Do you remember the circumstances you were in? Do you remember the pain you experienced? Do you remember the addictions you had? Do you remember the conflicts you encountered? Do you remember the pain you endured? Jesus is 
sometimes looking at us and saying, go back home. Go back home. Because now you're a changed man. Now you're a changed woman. Now you're a changed child of God. And go back with what God has done and proclaim it to your situation. What was once painful, he can change it to a place of joy. What was once what was once that destroyed you, now he can use it to build someone else up. The man goes back proclaiming what Jesus had done. Do not be afraid. The good shepherd will walk with you and protect you. Psalms 23. Go back to your situations and declare how much God has done for you. Return to your house and tell of what God has done. He may not have realized it, but he was the first missionary. He was the first person that Jesus sent out saying, go back. Because until then, Jesus at that point said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. But Jesus commissions the demon-possessed man, the formerly demon-possessed man, and says, go back and proclaim what God has done. What a privilege. You see, often I wonder, Jesus, why can't you just take us away? We're Christians. We're Christ followers. Why can't we just come be with you? We escape the cares of the world. We escape all of this. But honestly, there's a work that he has to do through you and me. There is transformation in our communities. There's transformation in our families. There's transformation in our jobs. There's transformation and life change that has to happen because we're able to go back and say, hey, look at what Jesus has done in my life. Go back and declare what God has done. See, there's so much that happens in this story. The story of the man who was filled with demons and then the story of the pigs and all of that. But none of that is the point. The point is this, that the God who loves us, that the God who will pay whatever the price, including his own son's death, would come for you and I, would love us with a love so deep that he would pay the price for you and I. As you go this, this afternoon, this morning, as you go into wherever life takes you, wherever God has placed you, go knowing that you are loved, knowing that you were paid for, that God paid the price for you through the death of his son. And that no matter what the situation, whether it's the storms that you're encountering or the devil himself, that he is more powerful and he is able to handle it. So no matter what life brings at you, it may overwhelm you, but it will not consume you. It may overtake you, but it will not destroy you because you have Jesus with you. So go into your life, go into your week, go into wherever the Lord has planted you with the words, this is what God has done for me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this story. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not just rush past it saying, I can't relate to this man. Help us, Lord, instead to come and say, Lord, there is a sin so deep. There is a brokenness so vast. There is an enslavement that I feel around me. There is a prison around me. Lord, rescue me. 
Lord, if, if we haven't met that, met that love, Lord, help us, Lord, to encounter it today. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the price that you paid for each of us. Remind us of the work that you accomplished. Remind us of the prisons that you broke us out of. Remind us of our former life. Remind, remind us of the hopelessness that we lived in. Remind us so that we're able to go and proclaim. Look at what God has done. Lord, this morning, I thank you for the deliverance and the blessing that we have of knowing. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.